Welcome back to part three of our delicious conversation with Emily Chang. She is a highly seasoned executive who is the CEO of McCann World Group China. She's worked with people, uh, companies like Apple, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks. So, you know, she's a big cheese. And also on top of that, she wrote a book called The Spare Room. We've been talking about what that actually is. Um, we've talked about the 16 children, or not, we've not talked about all of them, but some of the 16 children uh, that she's taken into her, quote, spare room over those years. We talked about the impact of that on her family, uh, on her own daughter, on her husband. And we've talked about uh, defining medical, <laughs> defying medical science, um, these amazing children, and uh, really this understanding of contribution versus consumption and what it all equals it's it's a it's a beautiful conversation if you're coming into it at this part i really encourage you to go back and listen to the first two parts of this conversation because it is extraordinary and i want to come back into into this conversation because as you know if you're a, a regular listener or if you're uh, maybe you are a uh, a fan of the leadership and loyalty podcast uh, um you've heard me talk a lot about purpose. And I think that a lot of people have purpose upside down. They don't really understand what purpose is. They're not blaming anybody for that. It's just, it's not really understood. And Emily has a very unique way of looking at purpose, what it is as an intersection, but it comes out of, a, you know, if you do it as a Venn diagram, there's an overlap and it's, it comes in there and it is magnificent because it goes to the heart, the soul, the truth of what, real purpose is. So let's jump in right there um, by saying, first of all, do you think that you, you know, before all this happened, did you feel like you had a sense of purpose in your life? So have I always had a sense of purpose? I would say since I was very young, I was highly, highly driven, but perhaps not with a defined purpose. As a child, as the child of immigrants from Asia, the purpose was to get straight A's <laughs> yeah. and be successful and make my parents move to the U.S. worth it. You know, right. uh, I think that's a lot of pressure, but in many ways, it was good. It was with and uh, grit and a sense that we want to make this worthwhile. And education is not something we take for granted. And living in the U.S. is a privilege. So I think that's how I grew up. Um, and I think that drive has always stayed with me until now, for sure. I'm a very driven person. But that's drive, not purpose. And I get that because that drive has got very little to do with you as a child and everything to do with the expectations that are put on you, which, you know, is not, it's not Chinese as such. It's actually Asian. I'm married to somebody who's Asian, you know, as in um, they're brown Asian and you know, it's there because the uh, the American dream has been sold to the world. And, you know, the rest of the world jumps in and goes, I've got to have that life and I'm going to pr provide it for my kids. So let's make sure our kids become lawyers and doctors and engineers and those kinds of things. But that's not a purpose. Whereas what you're doing now mm -hmm. is so much so purposeful. Did you have any sense of that or do you feel like so you sort of stumbled into your purpose? Perhaps I was building the story a little slowly. What I was trying to say is growing up with a drive, once you get to a point where 
you do feel a bit more of a more of a north star you can sort of leapfrog in some ways into intentionality so i think it was probably in in college when i first met leah that i stumbled into something where i took somebody home for a night and it became something bigger and as leah moved out another girl she knew on the street moved in pretty much immediately. And from there on, it was a pretty regular stream of people moving into our home. I wouldn't say it was a purpose at that point still. So there was the drive and then there was this thing that kind of kept seeming to happen first to me and then to my husband and I as a young couple. But it definitely um, fueled something. I would say a sense of contribution more than a young couple which is normally somewhat self-involved and building their own life and starting their careers. But I think right away, we had this thing on the side that gave us a bit of what I would say is purpose, but I wouldn't have articulated it that way at that time. But then after a couple more, we met a, we met a young lady. Um, we named her Devin in the book. And she was a child bride in the U.S. So, you know, we focused a lot on the first two sessions we recorded together about China, but I would say there are equally large gaps in social justice systems in the U.S. And so when oh, I, I came up with Devin. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I want everybody to be aware of that, that we may have been focused on the fact that you were living in Shanghai and all this, stuff, but this is not nothing to do with China. This is to do with these gaps in the social systems in the United States, in Britain, in Australia. It's across the world where kids are falling through the cracks and this is not a perfect system. So I, I love that you're talking about this child bride situation in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. So we we came across Devin and she, she is a chapter in the book, so you can read more about her. I guess that was probably the first time these different experiences started to culminate in my mind and in my husband's mind as a bit more of a purpose to say, this seems to be something that keeps happening to us. Oddly, mm. I mean, Devin, literally, we, we met her because she was running across the front of our house as we came back from hiking with our dogs. And, and she was obviously very distraught. And we just ran out into the street to say, what's going on? How can we help you? And we realized that she'd gotten married as a teenager, that she'd been kicked out of the home by her husband, who was also a teenager, older teenager, and she had nowhere to live. So she ended up moving in with us. And at that point, you know, it was there are there were a couple of things that sort of started to to solidify this purpose. One was we were very intentional about saying we have no idea about this girl. She literally just, you know, we don't know her from Adam. Second, she has a, a you know, a situation that's not particularly good. Um, and third, I think we don't know when she's going to move out. And I think we never really knew when people were going to move out, but this one as a married couple, bringing a stranger into our home, it required a sense of a deeper sense of reflection and agreement between the two of us. And I think that's sort of the, the seed that turned into purpose. Um, I'm also realizing, and I should probably explain, Devin is the combination of two child brides that we've had in our home. So the story in the book is two different women young girls that we've had. And so what I just described is not exactly the Devon you read about in the book, because that part, I've met that girl at a, at a salon. This one was a girl who was running by her home and we brought her in. So anyway, in case there's a <laughs> confusion with the book, two well, characters merged into one. That's why we gave her a different name. But the, the interesting thing about it is, is, is this, um, I want to address something that is under the surface here, which is 
when you take, for instance, when you take in a child bride, the ramifications of that are the husband could come looking. There could be violence. There could be all kinds of assault. There could be all kinds of threat. And yet you still did it. Like, so, you know, a lot of people would go, well, let's call the police and have, you know, well, what are the police going to do? This is a child bride. You know, they're not going to do anything. And what people don't realize is it's legal in the United States to be to marry a child. People don't know that. But in many states, it's legal to marry a child. You know, we're not talking about some third world country. We're talking about the United States. It's legal to marry a child. It's like mind blowing for most people who don't even know that. Um, did that did that even cross your mind that potential illegal ramifications, violence ramifications, etc.? Yeah, always. I think with the very first kid, Leah, she was a teenager as well. And to your point, um, in one of the earlier sessions, you know, her parents could have come looking for me. She refused to go home. I didn't know who her home was. I've never met her parents, but I agreed to take a teenager into my home. And I know that if something happens to her, or she accuses me of abusing her or kidnapping her, you know, I, I'm the one who's probably yeah. on the line. But yeah. I think in the earlier days, I, again, I would say I was a driven kid and I wanted to do the right thing, but I didn't have a lot of purpose that was behind that. Then by the time I met Devin, I would say that purpose started to coalesce and I became much more intentional. And so when we talked about bringing her into our home, my husband and I did at length discuss, okay, what are the pros and the cons here? What are we choosing to do. And those choices are hard. That was probably the first hard choice I had, if I'm honest. We had quite a few people in our spare room until then. And those were pretty easy because, again, we said in session two, that, you know, life kind of leads you down this road so that it becomes easy in the beginning. And each step, while it takes you further down, um, I would call your purpose, uh, mm -hmm. it's not hard because you're taking step by step, not massive leaps at a time. So with Devin, we did have to say, what happens if, you know, what happens if this person comes looking for her? And, and when you are a child bride, I do believe to your point, I looked at the statistic yesterday, 44 states still allow child marriage um, as of now, you know, this is August, 2021. Yeah. And people so look we had at to say, the Middle East and they go, you know, we have to stop child brides in the Middle East. Uh, how about you stop them in the Middle East of America? Right. Yeah. Like, this is not this is not a Middle Eastern thing. This is not, you know, uh, this is right under your nose, as is, you know, the sex slavery and all the stuff we talked about earlier. Now, throughout this amazing interview, uh, there are a lot of things we've covered. And I talked about that at the beginning of this particular episode. But one of the things that fascinates me is your beautiful understanding of purpose. It's as you know, it's a big piece of my work, meaning and purpose, but you understand purpose in a way that I think very few people do. And it's so, it's beautiful, it's practical, um, but it's also challenging. And I love that about it. That's what I think the purpose is. If you're not challenged by your purpose, it's not really your purpose. It's just an idea you've got. So I'm going to pass it over to you because I'd really love to hear from you how you see purpose and how we can interpret that. Sure. I guess one thing I'd start with is what it's not. Okay. So it's not something that is generic. You know, I, you find people trying to convince you of what your purpose should be. Like, let me tell you why um, 
sustainability is so important and why you should care about it. Let me tell you why you have to stop using plastic bottles. I'm not saying those are bad uh, objectives at all, but they no. may not be the thing that you uniquely are, are called to. So I do think what purpose is, is very personal. Absolutely. And the other thing it's not is a bitter sacrifice. It's not something that you have to give up and force into your lifestyle. Rather, when you figure out what it is that you're uniquely created to do, it's something that grows in abundance. So mm -hmm. with that said, I've, I've developed just a very simple model, you know, engineering background, you kind of think through what's, what's a framework that will work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's just two different pieces. On one side, there's the offer, which is who you uniquely are and what you bring to the table. That can be your unique personality traits. It can be your capabilities, your experience, your time, your money, and other resources. When you create that bundle of what you uniquely offer, and if you can write it in one sentence or three sentences most, that's something that the book kind of takes you through in terms of reflective exercises, then you've got one half of the puzzle. The mm. other half is your offense. So it may be ocean plastics. It may be sustainability. It may be sex slavery. Everybody has something that really calls out to them more than all the other injustices in the world. It may mm -hmm. not be an injustice. It may be an opportunity, a gap to fill. And when you figure out what that thing is for you, then you've got the other half. So you take your offense and your offer, you put them together. That intersection is what I'm calling social legacy. And mm -hmm. the reason I didn't use the word purpose, Dove, is it is sometimes overused and yes. it is a little bit daunting sometimes for people who are sort of like, oh God, I don't know what that means. I don't even know how to go about it. But social legacy is simply the combination of two things. Legacy is how I leave something better than I found it. And mm -hmm. social just defines your society, the space in which you seek to make an impact. For some people, it could be their family. It can be bringing people in their home. For others, it could be their neighborhood was a story that didn't make the book. I posted on the website. It could be your country. It could be, it could be the earth. Um, so I think figuring out your offense and your offer, the intersection, then allows you to define your social legacy. And I think there's power in creating a succinct statement because it's easy to have something amorphous, but it doesn't give you that direction and single-minded focus that a statement does. Okay. So a succinct statement. So there's a lot to unpack there. Thank you. Um, so let, let's start first of all with, um, you, you talked about it being offer and, and offense. Is there an order? Meaning, you know, if, if maybe I don't recognize all the things I've got to offer, but I'm really pissed off about X, you know, so I'm yeah. offended. Or maybe I don't really know what I'm upset about, but I know I've got all these talents. Is, there, is it one before the other or doesn't it matter? I think it doesn't matter. And in fact, the reason I came up with this is I started with that TEDx talk, right? When mm. I was first thinking about writing the book. And as you prepare for a TEDx talk, they really have you go deep. So oh, it yeah. started forcing me to think through what is the framework. And then as I spoke to people, that's exactly what I found. People either generally know their offense. This is the thing that pisses me off, but I don't know what to do about it. Right. Or they have their offer, which is like, I know what I can offer. I just don't know where to direct it. So right. that's why I kind of came up with these two things, which is if you've got one, let me help with the other. If you don't have either, let's define them both. But when you find that intersection, what's interesting is it's the thing that you're going to just, it clicks. You're going to say, that is it. That's exactly what I want to go do. And I feel motivated and it's not hard. It becomes something that is joyful. It enriches the people around me as well as myself and my family. And like I said, it grows in abundance. 
You know, I think that's a great point because I think that when you get to it in the, in, in its truth for you, and I want to be clear about that in its truth mm-hmm. for you, there is that, what I call an of course moment. Mm. You know, a friend of mine wrote a book about branding and God, I've read so many books on branding and I'm so sick of branding and it just it annoys the hell out of me, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and I read his book uh, before I ever knew him. And I went, this is the best uh, branding book I've read in 10 years because it was filled with, of course, I kept reading it and going, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Mm. And I think that that's when you know something has landed with you. It's no, you're not right for the world, but it's like it's landed for you. And so when you're finding that 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 social legacy, that purpose that's yours, it it isn't, of course. And, and you don't have to have anybody talking you into it. You know, you should stand up for women's rights. You should stand up for saving the planet. Yeah, right. I, I should and I do. But is it my thing? Mm. Is that what I'm on? And I think that when you, you know, you play the game at a, a very high level in, in, in the, in the business world. And a lot of the people who get to the place that you've gotten to, where you're a CEO of a major organization, a lot of those people have got a ton of resources, but oftentimes have never slowed down enough to look at what's the offense. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, it's exactly the opposite. They've got all the offense and no resources. So can you talk to us a little bit about, how to find that, you know, particularly in the upper end where there's a lot of resources available to that individual, but maybe like, I mm, don't know where to look. And, and a lot of people, say, well, you know, things bother me, but they don't really bother me. I know you've outlined it in the book, so let's go there. <laughs> I'm actually opening it to have a look at these um, exercises. So I kind of put your offer at the center of four things, your capabilities, your passions, your uniqueness, and your resources. And, you know, there's no one model, right? So I really kind of thought about this and thought, what can help everyone? Everyone can relate to something. So in terms of capabilities, there are some questions that you can ask yourself, like when and where do you excel? Because Mm. it's sometimes difficult to talk about your own capabilities. Like, you know what? I'm really good at this. That's not a sentence that most people say. Well, they're not comfortable with it anyway, yeah. Yeah, but where have I received rewards, accolades? What do people come to me for help with? Uh, Those are great ways to identify my capabilities. You know, what skills do you possess, which sometimes allow you to think, you know, maybe I should do something more with these. Right. And they can be anything. So I give a list of examples, but there may be many others that people might consider. In fact, uh, I will I will be a little vulnerable and share that somebody recently, I did a workshop, a Sparum workshop, and she said, these are pretty white collar. And I thought, you know what? That's probably fair. That's probably fair because a lot of these are business acumen, communication, presentation, envisioning, but you know what? Woodworking, um, flower arranging, uh, shopping, all of these things are capabilities. Some people are really good at it and really love it. And those are capabilities that you can bring. You know, maybe you can, somebody just called me recently and said, I think my thing is shopping. I love to shop and, and joking aside, what a gift that is for people who hate it or don't have the resources or don't have transportation, especially in a COVID world. There's a great way that you can add value to the people around you that that could be her spare room. And she kind of walked away starting, um, starting the conversation, thinking that it was kind of a joke and she had no value to add. And all she knew how to do is shop and leaving the conversation thinking, yeah, I think I can turn this into something useful for someone. Mm. Yeah, I love that because one of the things that 
that I love is the crossover of this because of course the, the book is called The Spare Room and it's about the people you took into that spare room. But the overarching message is living your social legacy, which of course is your website. But it's about living your social legacy and that social legacy, you know, it's it's not a Mother Teresa thing. You know, it, I think a lot of us think of it as that way. And, you know, you talking about this person saying, well, my real talent is shopping. And you go, oh, that's really, you know, lame or it's really uh, superficial. But if you're shopping for people who can't shop, there's nothing lame and nothing superficial about that. Or people who just hate it, who can do it, but just like detest it. That That is a joy to their heart that somebody else can take care of that. And so it becomes this wonderful crossover into a potential business uh, uh, application and a social legacy application, which is, I I think is very powerful because it allows us to feel a sense of, like you said, it's not necessarily about some kind of big sacrifice. It's also about finding, I love to do this. I want to do this. Or at the same time, I don't particularly know how to do this, but I want to find how I can tap my resources into doing it. Because I think that's the other side of it, right? It's like people go, well, I'm really bothered by this, but what have my skills got to do with that? Exactly. And that's where identifying your capability that's one step. The other thing to recognize is you can change the world. That sounds super dramatic, but you know, my daughter and I've been talking a lot about the metaverse <laughs> and right. alternate timelines and you know, how one, if you went back in time and did one small thing, how it could change the entire future. Those are really fun physics conversations, but they're also reality because a lot of times you may touch one person like Marlene is a chapter in the book where she's a, a working, uh, she's a blogger mother and she just takes her kid to gymnastics and sits at a Starbucks. I met her at a Starbucks when I was working there. And she told me the story and she started to chat with a homeless man. And then she realized all she needed was 43 minutes. Every time she dropped off her daughter, she taught this man to read and he ended up getting a job at that Starbucks. So she, she touched one person, right? But no, because she touched one person who's now touching so many other people. And we have to know that there's this amplifying effect. We may never get to feed our ego by knowing that net effect, but we can have confidence in there's more that happens because of this one thing. You know, one of the the bylines of my personal purpose is that I'm here to serve those whose names I will may never know and who may never know my name. Oh, I love that. <laughs> right. Because if I'm right doing there. it for them to recognize my name, that's not my purpose. That's my ego. And, right. and I got an ego. Don't get me wrong. Just like everybody else, I have an ego, but that's not where my purpose lies. My purpose is in serving something beyond me that outlives me that doesn't know, doesn't need to know my name. I don't care if it knows my name, but it's, and so that woman taught that man to read who is now having conversations with people in a coffee shop. And maybe he says something that brightens that person's day and maybe saves a life. And it was because this woman taught him to read. Is she, just a woman who was dropping a kid off and hanging out at Starbucks, or is she a life changer? And I think that that is the important thing about understanding that this is so much bigger than the immediate. And but the, but then we have to go to the other side, which is that a lot of people are upset about things that are very big. I.e., let, let's go to child slavery, right? Yeah. And they go, 
what could I possibly do about that? You know, I've got all these resources and skills and capabilities, but, you know, this is a global issue. Mm-hmm. How can I do that? What do you, how do you bring that home to these kinds of people? I think that's an amazing question. And I think my immediate reaction is jump in the boat. My daughter's been really thinking about university, even though she's just about to turn 13. And I'm thinking, good God, I think at 13, I was just learning how to paint my nails. (laughs) But uh, I took her to a college counselor because I want to take her concerns seriously. And this college counselor said, you don't have to know the end state. You don't have to know what you're going to be because she was putting all this pressure on herself, which is if I don't know what I'm going to be, then I don't know what university I want to go to, which means I don't know what kind of high school I want to go to, which means I don't know where I want to live. And there's all this pressure. And I thought, okay, we need to talk to somebody who's not me because I kind of said the same thing if I'm honest, but coming from a college counselor, her advice was just step in the boat, do one thing. And it might take you somewhere. You don't even know where it's going to take you. You might like it and then you'll catch a current or you might, and you'll step into another boat, but you only have to do one thing. And then the next thing. And, And chapter four of this book is called the first step exactly for that reason, because you don't have to have an overarching end goal. You can just say, what is one small step I can take in this direction that doesn't feel super stretching or challenging for me? Because if we push ourselves beyond our limits, we will give up or we'll step back. But if we just take one small step or get into that first boat, I think um, that's the only thing we have to do. I'll I'll give an example. So let's use sex slavery as an example. We, a woman stopped my husband in the middle of the street because she was accustomed to seeing him pushing our previous boy in a wheelchair. And she just said out of nowhere, this is Lotus's story in the book. Can I, can I ask you a question? What happened to him when one day she saw him without the wheelchair? And he said, oh, he's been adopted for it by a forever family. She said, oh, that's really good. I was worried maybe something, you know, sort of tragic happened to him. Two weeks later, she stops him again. She says, I know you don't know me. Can I just buy you a cup of coffee? She said, well, it occurred to me that since you were willing to take in that boy, you might be willing to take in another kid. And that's how random it is that we've found all these children. And that's when Lotus moved in. She'd been raised in a brothel. Her mother is a prostitute and she shares a room with her mother. And at first we just said we would give her a place to stay. Mm-hmm. And, and she's really self-sufficient. I mean, she's basically raised herself anyway these first 13 years. Yeah. One day she said, Uncle Minky, would you be willing to cook Western food for the kids in my old neighborhood? Nobody's ever eaten anything like this before. So my husband made salad and lasagna. My daughter and I organized some activities and, and gifts for the kids. And we went to her old neighborhood and served about 15 kids. It was then that this little boy stopped and said, auntie, I have a question. Is it true that in America, there's one day that's just for you and you get to eat cake and wear a shiny hat? And I said, I think you're talking about a birthday. He said, what's a birthday? I said, honey, it's the day that you're born and that's when we celebrate you. And he said, well, how do you know when your birthday is? And he turned around and he asked, he said, hey, kids, kids, who knows when your birthday is? And, a, you know, a smattering of hands went up and a lot didn't. So we decided, hey, what if we come back once a month and celebrate your birthdays? Everybody just write down a day if you don't know. And every month when it's your birthday, you will get to wear a shiny hat and we'll bring a cake for everybody. Oh. And that's how we started doing these monthly birthdays for kids who lived in this area where their parents were night workers. And then we needed help because it became kind of a thing. So we started bringing in our coworkers and our friends and it became a thing that lasted even after we went to Seattle. And after Lotus moved out of our home, these our, our amazing friends continued on this habit for another year and a half. 
And now there's a, an ongoing organization that just takes care of these birthday parties. If you ask me, would you be able to just create these monthly birthday parties for all these kids of night workers? I feel like I don't even know how to get started. Right. But we just took that first step by bringing Lotus in, took another step by saying, sure, we can create dinner. And one thing leads to the other. And part of the joy is seeing how these things open up. And you're like, really? Now I get to do this? I could never have done that on my own, even if I'd wanted to. You know, this is so beautiful because, you know, you and I talked about this in a previous episode, but, you know, that the Jungian path of, of the the hero's journey. And there is a point, which is the dark night of the soul, where everything is so dark, you cannot see anything in front of you. But in those uh, mythological stories, um, the hero or the potential hero is given a small light of some kind with which to see nothing more than the next step. And, and the, the, the heroic journey ends when you say, I can't see far enough. And it continues when you say, I can see the next step. And that's all it is. It's that heroic next step, which opens up into this plethora of choices, this plethora of gifts that, that you have no idea that you are blazing a trail for that you're opening up for those people because again there is now a bunch of kids wandering around who are saying my birthday is on july 2nd because <laughs> that's what i decided you know and, and and let's face it you know many of us are like you know my birthday's in february it's always pissing down and cold i might <laughs> choose a better month <laughs> i might choose a month where i could go out and have a picnic but you know so what a gift what a fantastic gift. So I just, I love that. But I love that you bring this down to, as I said, to your offering and your, and the thing that offends you and what you can do for it. And yes, it can be massive, but it can be also be tiny. And you are never, you're never more than a couple of steps away from the possibility of what it can be and, and how magnificent it can be uh, um, and what it opens up to. You know, we are sort of, we're coming towards the end of, of the show together. And I, I want to tell you that it has been nothing short of a pure joy to have this conversation with you. And I know we're going to have you on leadership and loyalty and, and we'll get into the, the business side of this and the business application of this um, when, when we do come together. Um, however, as we come to the end, um, I would love for you to tell uh, our audience more about where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about the wonderful book, The Spare Room, um, your website, your blog, um, all, and all the, you know, you're on Instagram. Just tell people where they can find you. Of course, we will post it all in the show notes, but just so people can understand. Oh, thanks so much. You can find me at the website. It's social-legacy.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn a lot for the business side, and that's just looking up Emily Chang McCann, CEO. And then the socials are on Facebook and Instagram. You can look at the spare room book and you'll be able to follow just little snippets and things that we post every other day or so. Emily, again, it's been a both a pleasure and genuinely an honor. And I'm so entirely grateful, not just for you to be with us in the show, but I'm grateful for the difference you're making and the work you're doing. And uh, I'm also grateful to uh, the butter in Jeggins um, for all that <laughs> she's doing as well. And, and to Minky as well. Uh, um, thank you for, for, 
for deciding to take it on and do what you're doing. And uh, you're an inspiration to me, genuinely, and I don't say that very often. You're a genuine inspiration to me, and I thank you for that. And I'm grateful to our, our mutual friend, Doug, for introducing us. Uh, if there's anything I can do for you, you can always reach out. I hope that you'll stay with us to the end. And for you, dear listener, um, remember that we'll post all of this into the show notes so you can find out how to get a hold of Emily, how to find out more about her fabulous book, The Spare Room. Uh, we'll post the a link to how to get it on Amazon, et cetera. And uh, we'll, we'll stay connected to you. So for you, dear listener, remember, stay curious, my friend. Stay curious about your offering and your offense, because that may be your spare room. Your spare room is not necessarily a physical space, but it is your social legacy. It's the thing that you can offer the world one step at a time, even if it's a step in the dark. Keep taking that next step. We are deeply grateful for you being with us, and hopefully you will share the show with everybody you know, because this is an important message that needs to get out there. Till next time, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. This is Dove Baron. You can find out more about me at DoveBaron.com.